0: And uh, good morning, Bill Handel here and uh, the morning crew on the first day of March. It is a Wednesday, and uh, the rain's still here. Phase three of the storms moving through right about now. And things should start clearing up tomorrow. Boy, what a uh, span of weather we've had. And uh, I don't know if you've uh, looked at some of the video or some photos of passenger train in Greece collided uh, with, I think, uh, is uh, with a freight train, and, I mean, head on. At least 36 people have died, more than 40 injured, and it's just just a god-awful mess. The earthquake in uh, Turkey and Syria, a 7.8 magnitude, I mean, a massive quake, uh, once again got uh, the entire world looking, or at least those in earthquake land looking and going, okay, let's see what happens if that happens to us. And since Southern California is on uh, that Pacific Rim, uh, the tectonic plates where earthquakes happen and we have the San Andreas Fault, uh, we are one of the prime areas in the world for earthquakes. Uh, There seems to be a lot worse in Turkey. For some reason, Turkey happens all the time and the buildings go down like crazy and it's because of the building codes, right? We know that. Because our building codes are terrific, and we would all survive. And we sort of would all survive. So what the Board of Supervisors of L.A. County has done is uh, they took the first step towards a mandatory earthquake retrofit order across the county for the unincorporated areas of uh, L.A., which the county is uh, overseas, as well as county buildings, etc., And they say, we have to look at this, and we have to retrofit these buildings. But wait a minute. We already have earthquake provisions, don't we? We have building codes. I remember when we built the Persian Palace. I mean, the earthquake, uh, the amelioration of the possibility of earthquakes, was throughout the whole building process, through the foundations, through the framing. I mean, it was just nuts. Well, that's because that was, uh, 19, uh, that was 1998. So what happened in, for example, let's go back in history for a moment. What happened after World War II? Buildings were going up like crazy, post-war boom. And concrete with rebar. There was steel in there. But these became non-ductile buildings. There wasn't enough steel. The steel was configured wrong, the rebar and concrete. So in a major earthquake, and this happened in Turkey, in non-ductile buildings, what the the concrete does is explode out if it's shaken enough, and then the building collapses. And we've got tons of those in Southern California. Not so much Orange County. Orange County is much newer than uh, parts of Los Angeles, but- uh, what the county is doing, what municipalities are going to be doing is say, let's look at those and and retrofit them. That's expensive, but the number of deaths that are going to occur. Now, keep in mind, when we talk about number of deaths, let's say you have Southern California. We're talking about L.A. County because this is the Board of Supervisors. Uh, if a 7.8 magnitude earthquake hit Southern California, I mean, it would uh, obviously shake things up. Dramatically, and buildings would uh, be destroyed or at least so severely damaged they couldn't be used. And they figure about 7,500 deaths over a much wider area because we're over a much wider area. I mean, relative to 50,000, which means that, of course, we are, our building codes are far stronger even before this comes up. You can't do non-ductile buildings anymore. That stopped in the 80s. But there are tons of buildings that are there before. So be prepared. You're going to see retrofit orders coming in the next few years. And it and the whole issue ramps up every time there's a major quake. And then it calms down and then it ramps up. But we're on our way to retrofitting. It's um simply part of life here in Southern California. So the LA County Board of Supervisors is jumping right on it. The uh Inflation Reduction Act, uh, as we know, very uh, controversial. It passed three hundred and sixty-nine billion dollars, and a few things about the Inflation Reduction Act uh, have affected uh, just a few people and companies, and one of them is Hyundai. Now, how does that work? Well, first, a little bit about Hyundai. Hyundai actually is considered probably the second most successful EV manufacturer, uh, EV car manufacturers. Uh, In the world. Uh, First, of course, is Tesla. Tesla still has a huge share of the market. Matter of fact, 59% in the US. Uh, But you've got uh, companies like Hyundai, and they have fresher models, new body designs, and growing like crazy, especially two models that Hyundai came up with Uh, the Ionic 5 and um, the uh, Ionic uh, 6. And uh, that's pretty impressive. Why? Because they're neat cars. Uh, The base price of the five is $48,000 and it's growing like crazy. As a matter of fact, it overtook uh, the Ford Mustang, the Mach-E, as a second place contender. And then the Inflation Reduction Act came in. And what ended up happening? Well, uh, under the Biden plan, the $7,500 that you got For buying an EV, you got a credit, and that's not a tax deduction. That is a credit, a credit meaning it's off the bottom line. If you owe $20,000 in taxes, knock $7,500 off that. That's a credit. And that credit now goes to, and the winner is, manufacturers of the United States. That's it. So you have to have, you have to buy a car that's manufactured in the U.S an electric vehicle. And let's go through the car, the electric cars that are manufactured in the U S Tesla. I think Tesla, maybe another couple of Teslas. And therein lies a real issue for Hyundai, because all of a sudden Hyundai has gotten $7,500 more expensive than the other companies. So if you have a base price of $48,000, And uh, you used to get $7,500 off that. Well, that's all gone, and you're now competing with Tesla, which, uh, even though it is more expensive, it's still a hell of a discount. And, uh, of course, what that did is uh, knock the sales uh, just right off the shelves. Uh, Hyundai and Kia, it's the same company, Hyundai makes Kia. The EV sales just dropped dramatically dramatically. And Hyundai execs are not very happy about it because uh, just a few weeks before the Inflation Reduction Act was passed, uh, there was a a delegation from Hyundai that met with the president who, during the course of that meeting, said, quote, we've got your back. That's a problem. Uh, No, Uh, he didn't. And so uh, great for Tesla. Not so good for Hyundai. Hyundai is a very interesting company. I just want to bring that up. When uh, Hyundai first came out, Kia first came out in the United States, uh, it was very low price. And for the money, it was probably the best car out there. I mean, from minute one, it had a reputation of being a good quality car, well-designed, and was cheap as dirt relative to other cars. And it has grown, much like what happened when the Japanese cars first came out. They, they all of a sudden you had now there were some eh, cars, but uh, then you had uh, the Nissan Datsun, which I think was a Nissan product. And then Honda came out and these were far cheaper and they for the money were extraordinary cars. And that's what knocked American car manufacturers on their ass because Japanese car manufacturers came out with a better product at a lower price. And that's what Kia did. Okay, so now Kia is a major manufacturer. I mean, they're a world player in cars, uh, car sales and manufacturing. And they jumped on this EV market really quickly. American manufacturers have not. German manufacturers have not. Of course, Elon Musk with Tesla, who is truly a visionary. You look at the two companies that he has created Tesla and SpaceX. I mean, you get, the guy is a genius. Then he buys Twitter. Okay, maybe not. He lost a few IQ points on that one. But he's the one that created the modern EV market with a modern car. That uh, And, of course, the, the the whole thing was battery, uh, the, uh, the amount of battery charge and the number of miles you could get on a charge. He sort of created that. Well, right after that, Kia said, uh, the Hyundai Corporation said, we're going to do that. And the guy who did this is um, who became head of the uh, Hyundai Motor Group, 52-year-old grandson of the founder, Jiayun Chung. And Jiayun Chung started right after World War II in the 40s as a single auto repair garage. Hyundai came out of one auto repair garage. And now you've got one of the world's largest corporations. So... Now you have the grandson Chung who's running the place and he instantly promoted 224 employers for research and development, uh, promoted people under 50 for high positions, which is simply not done in Korea. And what he did is he spent a fortune on developing the EV market. Now we're talking about before the EVs took off. I mean, we're talking about early, early days. The Japanese companies were playing it safe. Uh, especially Toyota, because they guessed that their hybrid, the Prius, was going to be the end-all, be-all. And it turns out that the plug-ins and the fully electric uh, vehicles are the end-all, be-all. Because if you look at what it costs to charge a car, especially if you happen to have a solar system at home, I mean, you're talking about literally just pennies. He spent uh, 16.8. Five billion dollars on EV development, effectively gambled the company on this, and it reminds me of the Boeing Corporation with the 747. When they developed the uh, 747, the 747 came out in 1968. Boeing gambled the entire company on that one airplane. If that airplane did not succeed, Boeing would not be around. And what a success that was! And much the same here is that Chung uh, devoted now not enough to effectively break the company like Boeing did if it failed, but took a huge flyer and developed uh, the uh, EV market, and so we're going to see a lot of Hyundai's very very good cars, and you're they're going to be competing with Tesla for the seventy five hundred dollar uh, discount that. Well, Tesla gets and Hyundai does not get, Uh, which, I mean, how do you feel about that? You know, I'm up in the air. I like a free market system. What's good for one is good for the other. You know, what's good for the goose is good for the other goose. But it's um, same time pushing for manufacturing in America and doing everything that you can. Basically, it's protective tariffs in reverse. Instead of putting tariffs and charging people for products coming in more, you charge people for products that are already here less. Uh, Is it going to work? Of course it works. $7,500 is no small amount of money. I mean, even if it's a $75,000 car, that's a 10% discount walking in the door. It's a $50,000 car. I mean, that's uh, whatever the hell that is. I wasn't a math major. So you're going to see a lot more of these. I, I'm starting to see those all over the place. Have you seen the Ionics mm-hmm. driving around? I love them. Yeah. And they're, they're beautiful cars. They are, and they're great cars, too. And uh, they're just uh, effectively $7,500 more than um, the, uh, the cars made in America. You're going to see the EV cars going out like crazy. Tesla's market share is going to be dropping. Uh, but the entire market is growing so quickly that as Tesla's market drops, it'll still sell a lot more cars. There's a lawsuit that has been filed uh, against Uber, and it has to do with discrimination. Uh, a couple of drivers, I don't know how many have actually filed the lawsuit arguing discrimination. They are minority. I think they are a uh, black one, black one Hispanic, saying that Uber and also Lyft, although they're not a part of the lawsuit, uh, they discriminate against people of color. Because there's something called, if you're a driver, uh, you you know what I'm talking about, a deactivation policy. In other words, there's an algorithm that just throws you off. If enough complaints are filed, if you've ever driven uh, driven with Lyft or Uber, you do a survey afterwards. And you give stars, and uh, if you don't like what happened, you can complain. And it turns out that minorities are getting more complaints than are Caucasians, white people. Based on the number of complaints and the severity of the complaint, they'll toss you. The algorithm just tosses you right off. And how do you find out? It's not as if they send you an alert. It's not as if they send you an email. Uh, Someone calls you. You log in that you're ready to drive because that's how it works. And boom, you're deactivated. At that point, you're told you're deactivated. Thank you very much. You're done. Uh, And sometimes for a period of time, sometimes permanently. And so what is going on with this? There was a survey that was done, 8, uh, 810 Uber and Lyft drivers here in California, and uh, two-thirds of them have been deactivated at least once. 40% of Uber drivers, 24% of Lyft, terminated permanently. And a third never even got an explanation. And uh, guess who had the highest rate of deactivation? Uh, 69% were uh, people of color versus 57%, and it gets tough, too, for people who drive for Uber. Have you ever gone on uh, an Uber trip, and I have taken Uber and Lyft, uh, and I have on occasion, and I start talking to these drivers? Hey, what do you do uh, when you're not driving? And it runs the gamut all the way from uh, this is I I just have nothing else to do. I'm retired and it's just fun to I need the money and it's a part time job for me uh, to this is what I do for a living. I wake up and I go to drive uh, and and I'm a driver. And those people work 12 hour days. Brutal six hours, six days a week, sometimes seven days a week. It's the only way you can make a living which I've never understood how you would run your car into the ground uh, for that. Uh, But here's the complaint factor, and I can see it. Minorities get hit most, mainly immigrants. Why? Because they don't speak much English. And uh, you ask them a question, or uh, other than just driving and then dropping you off, if there's any conversation, it gets very frustrating. Therefore, people tend to complain. And the complaints, of course, are now connected to the number of deactivations. If you have enough of them, you're tossed off. And what a lot of drivers are saying arbitrarily. Uber says that's not true, that they have internal safeguards. But at the same time, look at the numbers. More blacks and Hispanic drivers are deactivated, tossed off the platform. Why? And I was thinking about this. Does someone actually write an algorithm? Because, of course, they're written by people. Does anybody write an algorithm that purposely discriminates against people of color? First of all, how do you do that? What, face recognition? And you sort of write this algorithm? No, I don't think that's the case. It's based on the number of complaints, actually. And I was trying to think of why, other than I came up with, uh, well— People are basically racist. They just tend to look at uh, other people, different races, different ethnicities, different religions in not the same way. Now, are there more people of color driving for Uber? I don't know. Those figures didn't come out. But there's certainly uh, the statistics are there. And uh, keep in mind, where do human beings? Uber and Lyft are very interesting companies. What they really are, they're not a tech company. Uh, you, You think of them as tech companies, they're not. What they are are dating services done by computer, not differentiating as to who the driver is. It's, let's look at how many complaints, let's look at activation, let's look at where they are. If you say no a number of times, that's part of it, and you can be deactivated for that. There's one driver who said he got, he got complaints because he forced people to wear masks. That was the Uber policy at the time. And then he would get calls, and he would say no to those calls because he said, those too far away. I couldn't make any money. At all of those, he was deactivated for a period of time. And again, I told you it's a question of both uh, permanent as well as uh, temporary deactivation. And one driver who was tossed says that, here's what happened. I got tossed. Why? Because someone reported me as drunk. I've been sober for 20 years. I wasn't drunk. But that was added to the fact that I didn't go out far enough because I canceled or didn't uh, respond to orders and therefore add all that together and I'm done. By the way, this uh, pers- uh, person took Uber to small claims court and uh, got some money. And so this lawsuit and Uber, they're looking at this and trying to figure out what's ha- what's happening with this. I'm going to tell you, it's just an in- inherent bias that we have. It's that simple. When we break down and say, look at the minorities, uh, look at the problems. Uh, they don't have the same jobs, the same education, the same uh, avenue for education, promotion, etc., You know, those people that argue that there's inherent bias, they're absolutely right. And I think this proves the point because this is an algorithm that's doing this. And it's not an algorithm that's written that differentiates. It's it's an algorithm that responds to your complaints. Let's move over to what happened to the Supreme Court yesterday, and it was an important day. This court has heard a lot of very important cases, Roe v. Wade probably being one of the most important in the last 30, 40 years. Uh, yesterday, there was a case that the Supreme Court, uh, and this had to do with the student loan forgiveness. Now, it's a big deal, and I'll tell you why. It's not just certainly a big deal for uh, those people, I don't know how many, uh, who are uh, uh, have student loans, Uh, That would uh, be affected if uh, the Biden administration gets its way, and that is for giving $10,000 of student loan, uh, federal student loans, and $20,000 if uh, the student had a Pell Grant, the most, uh, the poorer students. And uh, that is, was stopped cold. Uh, You had uh, six Republican states and two plaintiffs who went forward and said, can't do it. Not right. And so it finally went up to the court. And yesterday the court heard arguments. The Supreme Court usually gives 30 minutes per side. And that used to be ironclad. I mean, you were done. A lawyer went up there, 30 minutes, honk. The light went on and the hook came out. Mid-sentence. And the only time that I can remember, the first time it was really extended is Brown versus Board of Education, the desegregation case in 1954. That went an hour and a half, and no one could believe that, but it was that important. Yesterday, three and a half hours, the court heard this case. I guess the old 30-minute rule is gone, and it was Justice John Roberts who actually did most of the talking, which usually is not the case. And there were several issues. Some uh, had to do just with standing. The Biden administration says this should be tossed out because the people here shouldn't be here. The states aren't harmed. And these two individuals, they're not harmed if uh, the loans uh, are forgiven. How do you argue harm? So that was the first volley from the uh, Biden administration. And that disappeared pretty quickly. Because the court really wanted to hear it. Same thing happened in Roe v. Wade, the first Roe v. Wade. It took longer than a pregnancy. So you can't, if you're arguing that I have a right to abort uh, and you're waiting for the court to make that decision, it's going to take longer than nine months. So the court said, okay, we're blowing off the time zone. And here uh, the court is could have easily said, okay, you don't have standing... Uh, you can argue don't have standing, but this is so important, we're going to give you uh, standing here. And by the way, they are going to give standing. At this point, they don't even care. They just want to hear the issue. And there are several issues, legal issues, and then there's one that John Roberts brought forward that you never really hear when you're dealing with uh, the Supreme Court because the court normally is uh it rules very narrowly and it doesn't like to rule on morals it likes to rule on the law and the tenet that John Roberts is going to base his opinion you already know which way it's going to go you can just tell by the questioning often you can and this was so blatant you knew exactly the way it's going to go we know the way it's going to go and Roberts is uh not going to allow the forgiveness and his big issue is Just plain, old, ordinary fairness. Let's just be fair. Forget about the law. Let's just look at this and see what's fair and what isn't. And so in front of the court, you can always tell which way the court is going, or usually uh, simply by the questioning. And the the, the liberals and the the, uh, conservatives, man, they just went straight down the line. So the Biden administration is arguing this: that the president has the ability, as through the Secretary of Education, to forgive the loans under emergency powers. And it was a two, uh, thousand three bill called the Heroes Act, and uh, under that act, uh, the uh, Secretary of Education can forgive loans in an emergency. Now, during COVID, the Secretary of Education, upon the direction of the president, said, we're stopping payments. No more interest. We're holding off interest, and we're holding off payments without penalty. No one really argued with that. In the middle of COVID, people weren't working, and so there was a moratorium. Now there is a forgiveness. And the Republicans or the uh, conservative members of the court are saying, hang on a minute. This is very different. Because, one, it's a definition of what is an emergency. It's no longer COVID. And the emergency is that people are in debt. Overwhelming, prohibitive debt. Which is true. I mean, one of the arguments is, uh, and Roberts brought this up, how about the people that pay the loans? I paid my loans. But my loan was based on $65 a unit. And that was law school. Today, law school is $50,000 a year tuition. Very different animals. So people are far, far more in debt. So there's the reality. And so this is what Kagan and Sotomayor said. You're not giving these people a chance. Look at the amount of debt that they're in. This is, uh, that's the emergency. And the conservatives are saying, hang on a minute. You know, this, this is not an emergency under the HEROES Act. And Roberts also said, and this is a doctrine that is uh, used by the court and is a doctrine that says when you're dealing with something of this magnitude, and he said this is half a trillion dollars, this is no joke, Congress has to be brought in. The president doesn't have the unbridled power to simply say, okay, we're forgiving uh, $500 billion of loans. He said, that is going too far. So he really said there is a place and there is a line of which we're going to let it happen, but not this one. So that was issue number one, dealing with that doctrine that John Roberts brought up. Uh, The other one is simply, does the president have this kind of power? The president's powers have expanded just dramatically over the last several decades where Congress is becoming weaker and weaker. For example, I said this uh, a couple days ago, I even brought this up yesterday, is the ability to declare war. The president picks up the phone and he says, we're getting out of Afghanistan. The president picks up the phone, uh, Bill Clinton, let's bomb Serbia. The president decides, uh, let's uh, go into the Gulf War. And Congress, they can defund it, but the decision is the president's, where it was unheard of before. You know, the last time we actually declared war and the Constitution, right there, says the president shall declare war, Congress shall declare war, not the president. And that last time that happened was December 8th, 1941, the day after Pearl Harbor. All of the wars since then, and we've been in just a few have not been an official declaration by Congress. Just hasn't happened. So Roberts is saying, let's put a hold on this, or this is what the conservative members of the court are saying, let's put a hold on this. This uh, is going too far, but then we figured that the conservative members of the court were looking at this, if you look at the writings and you look at where they're coming from, uh, clearly they're on the side of reducing the power of the presidency, The liberals are in favor of increasing the power of the presidency. So you had uh, Kagan, Justice Kagan, uh, say, this is just, uh, these people are in so desperate straits that we have, the president has to be able to help them. Look how unfair it is for them to start life in so much debt. Well, John Roberts uh, countered that with, that's right, it is really unfair, and here's the unfair part. How about the people that paid off their loans? What do you say to them? How about the people who borrow from the federal government, for example, SBA loans to start a business? They're not getting any forgiveness. Why is it a preferred group of Americans that are getting this advantage? And let's go even beyond that. Why is it that Taxpayers who have borrowed money and are either paid it off or are paying it off or are not even eligible are taking their tax dollars and subsidizing these students under the loan forgiveness program. I mean, this loan forgiveness program is no small deal. Roberts had it right on when he said uh, it's half a trillion dollars. And then the issue is, uh, what is a national emergency? I believe the Biden administration's position is a national emergency uh, is whatever the hell they believe a national emergency is. And this is where the court comes in and says, uh, no, no. So under the HEROES Act, the Department of Education has the right to forgive loans but only under national emergency issues. That's all. There has to be, the uh, Department of Education can waive or modify federal student loans, and I'm quoting now, in national emergencies. Can it be used during COVID? Yeah, probably. Certainly the waiver of interest and payments. Can it be used sub uh, post-co- uh, post-COVID? to eliminate $10,000 of student loan for the sole reason that it's just so burdensome and people who borrow money are going to have a much harder time getting started and student loans stay with you forever. Mine, uh, it took me 10 years to pay off my loan. It was a 10-year program. 10 years I paid off that student loan and there was that payment every day, I don't know, $300, $250 a month, whatever it was. I wrote that check. Would I have liked to have it been forgiven? Yeah, it would have been nice. I mean, there is a, 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 in those days, uh, I had a little bit of a drug issue, as you know, after I got out of the bar, just a little tiny bit. Do you know how much cocaine you can buy with
1: $10,000?
0: <laughs> I mean, I tell you, I would have liked the government to subsidize my, uh, uh, my addiction. It would have been terrific. Under the HEROES Act, but... Unfortunately, it didn't pass till 2003. And now because it is a Wednesday and it is the 8:30 segment, it's time for Dean Sharp, Handle and the House Whisper. And Dean is heard Saturday 6 to 8 a.m. just before Handle on the Law, Sunday 9 to noon at Home with Dean is his social address. And Dean, good morning.
1: Good morning, Bill.
0: There you are. Okay. So, I'm looking at today's topic, And I see the headline, and it is how to skin uh, a shelter that has cats in it, right? (laughs) How to skin a house. Yes! How to skin a house. Yes, Uh, several ways to skin a cat shelter. Okay,
1: (laughs) what do you mean when you're talking about skinning a house? Well, what I mean is uh, this weekend, we're going to be taking a look at these two major facets of... uh, home building, and that is the skin, the surfaces that we put on the outside of a house, how we wrap the outside of a house, and how we wrap the inside of a house, and strangely enough, how intimately uh, related these two things are. Of course, I'm talking about siding, stucco, plaster, uh, and drywall, those kinds of things, the skins that we put on the bones of our house.
0: Yeah, everybody knows what siding is, Clearly, that's the that wooden siding or the vinyl siding. It's the stuff that uh, they used to do door to door. Remember that film Tin Man uh, with Richard Dreyfuss selling siding? Oh, yeah. yeah it was a great film. Uh, we all know what plaster is. We all know what drywall is. A lot of people don't know what stucco is.
1: Yeah, see, stucco is a weird thing, right? And it's got uh, it's got an interesting uh, call out and depending on where you go in the world. The history of stucco, just to give you a brief uh, background, is that stucco is plaster. Uh, it, it's all part of the family of plaster. It was, you know, plaster has been around for like 7,000 years. I mean, the Egyptians, You, when you see shots of inside of uh, Egyptian king's tombs, okay, not the pyramids themselves, they weren't covered in plaster, but on the inside of the tomb rooms, the chambers, Course, all these hieroglyphics painted all over the place. That was all painted on smooth plaster walls. The Egyptians knew how to plaster the inside of these stone walls and make them nice and smooth and uniform. And then they painted them up and did all this stuff. So plaster has been around for a long, long time. It was the Italians, not the Romans, the Italians who came later, who <clears throat> first boldly decided right around, you know, like pre Renaissance days to take plaster put a little mix into the recipe, add some cement to it, and start to use it on the outside of buildings. And uh, as a result, uh, that became, for the rest of the world, uh, known as stucco, because the Italian word for plaster is stucco. So in Italy, if you say, hey, uh, where's the stucco? They'll they'll kind of like, well, inside or outside. For, for them, stucco is everywhere. It's on the inside of buildings, it's on the outside of buildings, because that's just their word for plaster. For the rest of us, we saw the Italians starting to use it on the outside of buildings, and we're like, hey, what's that? And they're like, it's stucco, and uh, that's where stucco comes from. It's a mixture for us of concrete uh, and uh, various other binders, and it goes on in uh, these days four layers, four layers of, uh, of, of stuff to go on the outside of your wall to produce that finish.
0: Uh, so let's go into lath and plaster. What does that mean? And then that goes right into drywall and the difference between the two and why there's no such thing as lath and plaster anymore.
1: Yeah, so, you know, plaster was originally designed to be a coating on top of solid surface walls, right? Back when everything was made out of stone or brick or, you know, like the castle wall. You would just smear plaster over it and smooth out the inside of the uh, of the room, But when we transition to wood frame, lightweight wood frame uh, buildings, you know, now you've got these wood studs there and there's this open space in between the two. So where does the plaster go? That is when Lath was invented. And everybody has seen Lath, whether you live in an old home or whether, you know, you've just seen an old movie. It's these very thin boards that are put uh, nailed against the studs. Uh, with little gaps in between them, all over a room, Uh, every wall, all the ceilings, the whole thing. That becomes the base that plaster was then spread on, at least the first coat of plaster. And then there were multiple more coats on after that, until the wall got to be about three quarters or almost sometimes an inch thick. That's lath and plaster. Now, that's a very very tedious process like i mean just imagine bill i don't know if 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 you know most builders haven't imagined what it would take to take the inside of a room and to completely cover it in these tiny thin boards putting a nail in every single one in every single stud over the entire board it would take one or two days per room to completely lath out a room and then you've got coats of plaster each one has to dry in between the next coat so Lath and plaster for a typical room would take a week to complete. I mean, easily take a week. Then along comes this new product, these sheets of pre-established, uh, uh, pre-compressed gypsum board that you can just basically hang straight on the wall and paint and you're done. So after World War II, drywall became to, started to dominate the market and that's now uh, what most homes are made with today. You can still do lath and plaster, but we only do it for very specialized, very curvy, bumpy, weird wall conditions that a flat board can not accommodate because why would you when you can simply go in, two drywallers can drywall a whole house in a day where it used to be that uh, one day uh, with an entire crew might get half of the lath up on the wall. So massive savings of time and money and that's drywall today.
0: Uh, a couple things. Uh, my house, remember that before the Persian palace, we talked about it built in 1927 uh, where it was real two by fours. It was redwood two by fours where they ran piping solid to run wires through. I mean, it was a very different kind of uh, building. It was all lath and plaster.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: And uh, I mean, I look at that and when we had to repair things, you know, I had to punch through walls and put in additional electrical, whatever. Of course, we covered it up with, uh, with drywall. Now, there's still, you have to put a film on the drywall because you have seams. And uh, so uh, this is the skill level, not qu- obviously the skill level to put on real plaster on top of lath is extraordinary. I don't even know where you find people anymore that do that. Uh, But I'm assuming it's fairly easy just to, you know, do they even use the word plaster to go over
1: uh, the drywall areas? Well, sometimes we talk about a plaster finish, meaning, in other words, we're going to try and simulate a plaster finish. Uh, but no, it, it's just mud. We just talk about drywall mud these days. It's essentially the same stuff, though. It's just designed to go on in thinner layers. And you were asking, okay, yes, yeah, so drywall goes on. The thick paper that is the finish side of drywall is designed to have the paint done directly to it. So all you have to fill or cover over with mud is uh, the seams we tape the seams and we fill the nail holes or the screw holes these days so it's just spotty little bits of plaster added to the edges and along the field to cover up the holes that we've made and to join the seams together however there are different layers of drywall finishes there's type one two three four and five and if we go for a type five drywall finish then we're talking about drywall that basically has a full plaster skim coat on top of it and walking up to that wall initially you would be hard pressed to tell the difference between that wall drywall with a full skim coat and a plaster wall that's you know close to an inch thick sitting right next to it
0: all right let's uh, get into uh, very quickly cuz uh, Shannon's here we're going to do a cross in just a minute um uh, Shannon
1: cares deeply about these things
0: i uh, know she doesn't did you, did you not no. know that no she couldn't care less
1: That's true. Drywall. Do you care about
2: drywall? Oh, I, I, you know what? I woke up this morning and I said, I want to talk about drywall today.
1: Yeah. God, I I hope Dean's talking drywall today.
0: Now, I happen to love it because uh, I've, uh, you know, I was a contractor, a bad one, I might add and built the house, and so I love talking about this stuff. Uh, real quickly, uh, the, um, we're talking about uh, siding, uh, the different
1: kinds of siding and what you do and what do you suggest. Okay, so now we switched to siding on the outside. Not stucco, actual siding?
0: Yeah, let's talk about, yeah, we'll talk okay. about, stu- you know what, let's finish up with stucco. Uh,
1: okay.
0: <laughs> why not? Because we're sure. on the stucco, uh, you know, a stucco bandwagon right now.
1: Well, here's the thing. Yeah. So, so Shannon just asked, is there a difference? And see, that's the interesting thing, Bill, is because lath and plaster, right? You put on lath, which is some material that holds the first coat of plaster. Then you put on the first coat of plaster, which is called a scratch coat. Its whole job is to grab onto the lath and let the rest of the finished layers of plaster grab onto it. And then multiple layers of plaster. Now, that's the inside story. Stucco, remember, uh, the Italians took plaster and put it outside, mixed it with cement and put it outside. Stucco goes on these days exactly the same way. We don't put wood lath on the outside of your house. That's been replaced with uh, uh, sheets of building paper and some form of wire mesh. That's the lath. Then the scratch coat goes on. That's first layer. It just grabs onto the wire. And then we put what's called a brown coat, which is about three quarters of an inch thick, a big old thick uh, body of uh, stucco on. And then the thing that most people think is their whole stucco. And this is where understanding stucco gets pertinent to a homeowner because they'll see their stucco peeling off the house. And they're like, my stucco is ruined. It's all falling. No, no, no. 99 times out of 100, what's happening is the finish coat is peeling off. And the finish coat is the very last coat. It's only an eighth of an inch ah. thick. And, and that you- coat. Uh, is subject to all sorts of damage and water damage and stuff, but repairing it is easy.
0: Fair enough. Uh, Dean, uh, we are out of time. Uh, I'll catch you this weekend as you go through this really uh, carefully and in-depth. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Dean Sharp uh, heard uh, Saturday
2: 6 to 8, Sundays 9 to noon. So the takeaway is don't freak out if you think your stucco is crumbling. Yeah. right. It could be repaired. Yeah. So what's going on with you? Well, we're going to cover everything just horrific news out of Greece with that head-on train collision. Also, the latest on the Supreme Court hearing oral arguments yesterday when it comes to student loan forgiveness and Kobe Bryant's family settles the lawsuit for what, $29 million. Let me ask you this. You're a Lawyer, barely right. I know I use that term loosely. <laughs> loosely yes, um, but don't you think punitive damages should go to charity or something of that nature? I mean, could, the sole purpose of punitive damages is to hurt the offending party. Right. It's to punish. Why
0: is that money going to? Because that's our system, and yeah. you're absolutely right. There would be no. There's no reason why it wouldn't go to a charity. Yeah, and the court determine it absolutely, uh, but it doesn't work that way. Frankly, if I'm suing, I want the money.
2: Well, and lawyers, right? They want their ten percent. You
0: damn ten? Oh. Try thirty. Oh, really?
2: Thirty-five
0: or forty? Uh, forty. Gary and Shannon up next, <laughs> right here, KFI AM six forty live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app.